Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles, and I'm happy to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the program on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Deshaun Charles Winslow, author of a novel called Decent People. I grew up in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is right next door to a small town called South Mills, North Carolina. It is a town where people know, they may not know your name, they may not remember your name, but they know that you are so-and-so's grandchild, you know, or so-and-so's nephew and that you go to so-and-so church. And it can be, you know, it can be hard. It can be hard living in a place like that. It is a place where it is hard to have any anonymity. And you also, you can't be, you can't be too different. All right, that was Deshaun Charles Winslow. His latest novel is called Decent People. It is now available in trade paperback from Bloomsbury. Decent People tells the story of a black community in a small southern town that is reeling from a triple homicide. The story takes place in 1976, and the town in question is the fictional town of West Mills, North Carolina, which first appeared in Deshaun's celebrated debut novel called In West Mills. Decent People is about the toxicity of patriarchy and the corrosive effects of deep secrets. It is a novel about shame, race, money, and the reckonings required to heal a fractured community. I had a great time 
meeting Deshaun and talking with him about his book, his life, and his approach to writing. That conversation is coming up momentarily. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at bradlisty.substack.com. It is free. The newsletter is simple. I let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and subscribe. It's free. Likewise, there is an Other People Patreon community if you are a regular listener of this show. If you get something from the work that I do, if you like the work that I do, and you want to help see this show continue into the future, please consider joining the Other People Patreon over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Finally, if you want to join the Other People Book Club, that too is an option. It's a great way to support this show. And you get something. You get a book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this program. It's only $9.99 a month for a book. It's less than the cost of a book. So if that sounds of interest, you can sign up for the book club over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Okay, so my guest once again is Deshaun Charles Winslow. His latest novel is called Decent People, and it is available now in trade paperback from Bloomsbury. Deshaun Charles Winslow is also the author of a debut novel called In West Mills, which won the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. It was also a recipient of and a nominee for a slew of other prizes. Deshaun was born and raised, as you heard, in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and he is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I'm very pleased to welcome him onto this program for the first time and to share our conversation with you right now. So, here we go. This is my conversation with Deshaun Charles Winslow, and his latest novel, once again, is called Decent People. So, I grew up watching... Murder, She Wrote, Madlock. That was, I felt like that was another one that we watched sometimes, but definitely Sunday, Madlock, and Murder, She Wrote, whenever that came on. And during the early months of the pandemic in lockdown, can't go anywhere, I started watching stuff on Prime that I hadn't watched in, you know, in decades. And I was trying to write. How did it, how, how did it hold up? You know, it doesn't hold up as well i still kind of watched episode after episode but after like the second one or maybe the third one i'm like okay i they showed that they introduce you to the killer in the first few minutes (laughs) they they make a quick appearance and then you don't see him again for a while you know so it didn't hold up but it was you know it was still kind of it was something to do you know but yeah i the the book originally was there was not going to be there were not going to be any murders the the piece about homophobia basically everything that the three pov characters i i, I know there are four pov characters but i'm i'm talking about Eunice Savannah and Ted they were going to have the same issues with each other and in their lives but there wasn't a murder you know involved at all. But I just, it felt like I was writing three, three novellas, you know, and I couldn't, 
I couldn't get them to, it was, it, I kept, I kept asking myself, yes, yeah, so what? You know, so Ted has a daughter who married a, a, a black man and he doesn't want to, you know, he loves her, but he doesn't want to speak to her because of the reputation, blah, blah, Yeah, so what? Eunice has a gay son. She's homophobic. You know, I I needed to throw, I, I was just having a hard time writing the book. Um, it just, it was, I was bored with it, you know? And again, it felt like three separate books that I was trying to force them together with the setting, you know? And then I decided, the sh- watching the shows, I was actually telling my partner, I said, I'm bored. I don't know how to make, I don't know how to make Eunice's part matter that much to Savannah and Savannah's part matter that much to Ted, aside from them being father and daughter and all that stuff. And I said, maybe I should throw in a murder and do pull some murder she wrote type stuff, you know? And he said, that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? <laughs> And I was like, okay, I might. And now I got to figure out how to make all three of those characters implicated in in some way, you know. But that's totally how it came about. My deadline was the, you know, was getting closer, and I was miserably bored. I just felt like I had written three projects, three short projects, and was trying to make them work together. Well, it's like it's never a good sign when you yourself are bored with your own yeah. book. But it's also a good sign that you that you notice it and that you're willing to admit it to yourself. I think sometimes writers resist yeah. that fact. Right. It can be painful to admit that your book is boring, but it's <laughs> better to realize that early than to realize it when it's too yeah, late, right? Yeah. My editor, my original editor at the time, she didn't she was fine with the, with it not having a, a a murder in it, you know, at all. She she was fine with that. I think her advice was kind of to raise the stakes in each part. and But that was the thing. I didn't know how to raise. I was like, how how much more can you raise the stakes? And it and I just kind of felt like it would have gotten very cliche. Like, for example, Leroy may have ran away. So have tons of gay, queer teenagers. You know, again, so what? <laughs> you know? And I just, I didn't want to write another book about Queer boy runs away from homophobic town and parents. Woman, inter woman with a biracial children they don't fit in. Father whose daughter married outside of the community. Like those are everyday stories. I feel like you know, and so I think the murder, adding the triple murder, helped. I really did. It helped me. <laughs> That's for sure. Listen, it is there is there is a reason why true crime it has exploded as a, its own genre and has become so popular and it's because it is dramatic and it does draw you in and it, you know, can, you can, there's a lurid aspect to it, but there's also, at least in the way that it's often presented and as it is presented in most popular narratives, uh, uh, a contained vessel. Mm. This is the way I always characterize it to myself. You know, people want to know what happened. Right. And so there is this kind of narrative structure that's sort of ready-made when it comes to a murder mystery, especially if, you know, if you're drawing it from real life and the murder has been solved. Mm -hmm. But even if it hasn't, I think the unsolved aspect can be interesting to people as well. You get people who try to become online sleuths or whatever, but you're kind of writing about a character who it's not an online sleuth, but you do have this character, uh, Josephine, who kind of takes on the responsibility of being a 
amateur detective to try to absolve her love interest. Yeah. And I gotta, I gotta give you a shout out for naming your characters. I think you do an excellent <laughs> job of doing so, Thank but you. this guy's name is limp. Yeah. His name is Olympus Seymour, but everybody calls him limp. And I like that <laughs> as a character name. It felt very unique, but it also felt like, I don't know, it made him seem believable. And it seemed like the kind of name that a guy from West Mills would have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just felt like of a place. Right. So, <laughs> You know, you make this decision to turn this into a murder mystery. And I, it's, I, I also read that you, I think, built the circumstances of the murder, at least in part from something that had occurred in your hometown or it grew out of that. Right. Yes. And I want to say, in, what, in an original draft, hadn't people died by drowning? By drowning. And then you sw- you switched it to being to murder a homicide with a with a gun yeah. yeah yeah there were so this happened in the in the 70s i wasn't quite born yet but my mom and her sisters were talking about it a few years before i started writing a book about uh these ladies these three elderly ladies who carpooled a lot to, they were going to church on this particular morning and as one of the ladies lived right up against the canal and at this particular time, there weren't guards, these like steel, heavy steel guards to keep from people to drive from driving over into the canal and that sort of thing. And something happened with the car. Um, of course, no one will ever know whether the lady who was driving, if her foot or shoe malfunctioned or whatever, or if, the, if it was brakes or whatever, but they backed into the canal and they drowned. And they were, oh, yeah. yeah, they were three, three old women. One was a hairdresser. That's all about all I can remember about what my mom told me about the three ladies, but she knew their names and everything, but one was a hairdresser, but yeah, so they drowned and I was fascinated because I had never heard about that story. And I thought it was horrible that there was nothing to protect anyone from just driving over into the canal, you know? And, um, so I decided to do something with that. So in the original draft of the book, they had the women had drowned it, and I turned them into siblings. By the way, I turned them into Marion, Laz, and and Marva, and then each of the uh, the POV characters had a friendship or a, a beef or something with them, and so that was sort of their inner ter- turmoil. But again, it bored me. Because, okay, um, Eunice took her son to see the doctor. The doctor drowned. <laughs> like, what? it was an accidental death. You know, why is she in turmoil? You know, um, and the same with, with Savannah and, and Ted. It, the stakes for me just weren't high enough. I mean, I suppose for Ted, there could have been, I won't give away too much. But for, for Ted's part, I imagine his if there was no murder, just the drowning alone could affect him. You know, he was in love, but, um, the other with Marion. Marion. Yeah. But for the other two, an accidental drowning when they're pissed off with them. So problem solved, you know, <laughs> you can, you know, there's no, who are they going to be mad at now? You know? So, yeah. So the, it had to be changed to a murder had to be for me. And and how long of a time period elapsed between the initial draft and the initial con, you know concept for the book to when you made this shift into triple homicide murder mystery? Like how long were you 
in the wilderness yeah. with this book before yeah. you finally locked in on it? I would say from um, fall of 2019 until about until about November or so of 2020. Yeah. So a year. Yeah. Yeah. How was that for you? Because it can be stressful when you're working on a book, but you don't have it by the tail. Right. It it was stressful. I did a lot of procrastinating. I would write scenes just so, so the word count would grow. <laughs> you know, I would write scenes and then I'd be like, they this scene is useless. You know, it might've been fun to, to write it for a day or two, but it's useless, you know? So I just, my wheels just spun for, for a year. And at that point I knew I needed an extension, which had, it had already been extended because of COVID, you know, they're like, we're giving everybody extensions on their books. Um, but I'm not the type of person who asks for extensions, you know? So I was just, I was ready to get it done. And, um, but it was miserable. It was, it was miserable. And I found that I leaned more into teaching during that time because it was like the excuse, you know, I don't have time to write. I got 75 students. (laughs) I had always had 75 students, even writing the first book. You know, so that's when I realized that something had to change. I had to get out of the wilderness. Yeah. Well, for anybody out there listening who is in the wilderness right now, the lesson here is just to add a triple homicide (laughs) to your story. (laughs) Problem solved. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have said that in a past interview that if you had to summarize this book in one sentence, I believe this is correct. Uh, this is in re- regards to decent people. You said, uh, everyone is a victim of patriarchy. And I think that the mask that we put on all people of all genders, uh, a lot of that mask is to protect us from patriarchy or to protect ourselves in some way. Yes. Yeah. So can you elaborate a little bit on that with respect? Cause this is on the surface, it's a, it's a murder mystery, mm-hmm. but what you're talking about here speaks to deeper concerns. Yeah. So I'll kind of go in order. I think that, and I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Eunice. I think at the end of the day, if homophobia wasn't a problem. And and can can you explain for listeners who haven't had a chance to read who Eunice is in broad strokes? Oh yeah. So Eunice Loving is, um, she's a African-American woman in her late thirties. I think she's a grocery store owner. She inherited, inherited it from her, from her parents and she is, you know, she's a church-going lady. She's a, a singer, a choir director, you know, a pillar of the community type person. And she cares what people think of her, her and her family. She is a child of adoption. She is not very proud of who her birth mother is. So she, her, you know, one of her big missions in life is to be upstanding and to not in any way have her biological mother's shame intrude on her own life or her family's life. And so when it becomes clear to her that her son is, is, is queer, she can't, you know, she can't handle it and she needs it. She needs it fixed for her reputation and the family's reputation, but also for his safety. She believes that this will, this will make him safe. So where the patriarchy piece comes in for her is the, homo- the homophobia 
part of it, you know, like if, if she didn't have to contend with, if she nor her son had to contend with homophobia and the threats that come along with that, whether it be physical or financial, social, all of that, then she wouldn't have done, she wouldn't have made the choices that she did, you know? And so that's why I see her as a victim of patriarchy with, with Savannah is similar, not with a queer son, but with her marriage. Savannah being. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Savannah. So Savannah is a white lady in her uh, mid to late thirties. Savannah was born and raised there in a, uh, uh, a well-to-do white family on the East side of town. Her father's was wealthy. She comes from a wealthy family and she, meets a young black man back in the 60s they fall in love they run off to new york to elope they get you know they have two children he dies uh suddenly and young and then she is due to financial reasons she is forced to move back to the town of west mills where she will she and her children will you know stick out like sore sore thumbs and her children are involved her children are used as pawns in this this homophobic uh, tactic. Now, where patriarchy sort of affects her is that she she's I mean she married a black man in the '60s, and so that that alone is just like a big strike against her and her future, especially there in the town of of West Mills. So she's you know she's struggling to protect her children, be a good mom you know, to not be bullied, but she also at some point sort of succumbs to patriarchy and becomes a part of patriarchy and some, some decisions she makes and atones for towards the end of the novel. And, and Ted, who happens to be her father, Ted is, he's a business owner, landowner, most of it inherited. Ted feels that he has just always lived in the shadows of his father and his older brother, and that everything he has pretty much came from them. He's never really made many decisions on his own, except for meeting the wife that he had and and having a daughter, but he lives in his mother's mansion and that sort of thing. And so he falls in love in the current part of the, you know, the present day part of the novel. He falls in love with someone who who the town would not approve of. And so he becomes a victim of patriarchy, even though he, you know, he definitely has some racist tendencies and stuff, but he becomes a victim of patriarchy because he, he can't do, he can't live the life he wants to live unless it is in line with white supremacy you know, basically. And so I just think that all of the characters, maybe so much Joe's part, she is, I mean, of course she's, you know, a victim of it just by living in the world during that time, but she's the most free of all of them. I think Joe, Joe being, Joe the, being our the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. And she is the one who is, uh, you know, in, engaged to limp. Right. Like or like romantically involved with Limp and is basically trying to exonerate him because people believe he might be the killer. Yes. That's kind of where the novel opens. Mm-hmm. And you've alluded to, you know, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about this cast of characters so intimately because it doesn't happen all that often on this show. Mm-hmm. 
which might seem strange because novelists do become intimate with their characters, but for you, it seems particularly so. This novel is the second novel that you've written. Both are set in this fictional town of West Mills mm -hmm. in North, North Carolina. Yes. And you speak of it like these people are real. Yeah. <laughs> like, and one of the, one of the effects of this book on me as a reader was that I felt like I moved there. Mm. Uh, I had to get to know everybody. You know, there's a bit of, of a process of orientation where you're keeping track of the names and the connections and the family connections and this, that, and the other. Yeah. And it feels very much how it is to perhaps integrate yourself into a small town mm -hmm. because in a small town, everybody sort of knows everybody That's else, right. right? And everybody's interacted with everybody and everybody's kind of up in each other's business yeah. one way or another. Yeah. And that that is how it must feel. I mean, you must feel like and I know you grew up in a town similar to West Mills. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you just talk about the, the, you know, your upbringing in small town, North Carolina and how it informed the construction of this fictional version. Sure. I grew up in Elizabeth city, North Carolina, which is right next door to a small town called South Mills, North Carolina. Uh, South Mills is where my mother was born and raised. And it's, it is really, it's an eight minute drive. You know, <laughs> Elizabeth City and South Mills may as well be one city, one county. But it is one of those communities, both South Mills and Elizabeth City, where I was actually born and raised, has grown some. So people don't know each other as, you know, as as much. But I'll just, you know, I'll talk about this this the 80s, the 90s, you know, when I was aware, it is a town where people know, they may not know your name, they may not remember your name, but they know that you are so-and-so's grandchild, you know, or so-and-so's nephew, and that you go to so-and-so church, and that, you know, they know, they know enough to know who to call to ask if they want more information, <laughs> you know, and, um, it can be, you know, it can be hard. It can be hard living in a place like that. I think, you know, I think my mom would probably disagree or maybe she wouldn't, but I, it is a place where it is hard to have any anonymity and you also, you can't be, you can't be too different in a small. I was going to say, yeah. I was going to say growing up in a place like, like South Mills, North Carolina, which I, is that near the Virginia border? I was trying to place it. it. So mm -hmm. that's where that's where you grew up, and to grow up as a queer kid in that kind yeah. of environment, culturally, yeah. spiritually, had to be challenging. It is. It is. The homophobia comes from every direction imaginable, you know, and it's not just from. I think what surprises people a lot. I think when I talk about the homophobia, the bullying I received, I think people expect me just to talk about the kids, you know, but I received a lot of verbal bullying from, a, from grownups. <laughs> you know, it was, it was so common, so commonplace. Because really why? Was. Like describe, like, can you describe like a scenario? Like you're what? You're just out and about? Yeah, Mine. let's say for example, I met I met because I did play with other kids in the community. So on a summer day, if I am at a friend's house, which is you know a few houses away or whatever, and we're out in the yard playing kickball, 
And if one of their parents or grandparents or, you know, an adult, it just happens to be sitting outside and just kind of watching us, I would be called a faggot because I had said or done something effeminate, you know, and it could, it could be like posture while I'm waiting for the person to kick the ball, <laughs> you know, it, something I'm totally not thinking about, totally unaware of, because I'm just waiting for the ball to be kicked so I can run and catch it or whatever. And someone's mom would be like, why are you standing like that? You a faggot, you know? And I had to hear this sort of stuff so much that it really, I think I became desensitized to it for for a while. And I think the older I got, as I reached like high school, then I would think back on it and I'd be like, wow, I was not, I was bullied by an adult, multiple adults, you know, a, a lot of, a lot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was not easy. I had a, you know, I had a good life, a good childhood outside of that stuff. I had great parents. My parents, they, they made mistakes, obviously, you know. But I was very well taken care of. I grew up in a two-parent home. Both of my parents always worked. They owned property and that sort of thing. So, I, you know, I was not poor. My life was good in other ways, you know. But boy, was I emotionally and verbally screwed. <laughs> well, I read, I read, I think I read that you understood that you were gay at a relatively young age and that your parents knew at a relatively yeah. young age, which isn't, I mean, generationally, I think we're pretty close. I was born in 75. Mm -hmm. So I think you and I, you might 79. be, a, okay. So you're a bit younger, but same kind of deal. And I think for us generationally, especially in a place like South Mills or in the town that I grew up in, in Indiana, people were not out typically. Yeah. And yeah. it was not uncommon at all for people to be in the closet all throughout high school and in, even into college and beyond. But it sounds like that was not the case for you, which in the context of South Mills would seem to me at least to be interesting and possibly a bit unique. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Well, I was in the closet. I didn't, you know, I told one person I was gay and I think I was in the 10th grade or maybe, maybe ninth grade. I came out to one, you know, to one person and that was because she was also, you know, she was also queer, but I was noticeably, I was, I was effeminate, you know, in ways that I think people just couldn't ignore. And, and so it was assumed, even though I had, I had like two girlfriends in high school and they were beards, of course, (laughs) you know, and I think both, both of those girlfriends, for example, I think they knew fully that I was gay and that, but I think they enjoyed my company. I think, I think they were, for lack of a better word, my fag hags, <laughs> you know, you were the safe but, crush. You were their safe crush. I was, yeah, <laughs> I was the safe crush. They didn't have to do anything, you right. know. And but, but yeah, they knew. And my mom, she, even though she did not, when I did come out, she denied knowing it. But I said to her, I said, "You knew," and she said, "No, I didn't." And I said, "You did know. You knew because you once asked me if I was into girls." And I said, "You wouldn't have asked that if you didn't have, you know, some kind of inkling." And um, I think we just kind of ended the conversation there, you know. But when I came out to them, which was right after high school, maybe, you know, six months out of high school, I left home and I came out over the phone and um, my mom had a meltdown. And that's why I was like, I don't understand this meltdown. <laughs> you knew, you know. But now, uh, but now fault, it's official, though. Now it's official. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but my dad was surprisingly cool as a, as a cucumber, you know, he was really cool. He did ask me, he had one request, well, two, he had two requests. One was to not catch a disease that would kill me. Fair. Two, yeah. (laughs) And two, and two was to try with, with girls in case this was a phase. And, you know, I said, I just told him, okay. Okay, dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But that seems that seems I mean, in the scheme of things, that seems relatively easy as a coming out story. You can hear I mean, you hear tales of yes. parent, you know, parental rejection and parents having, you know, much more intense meltdowns. Absolutely. Yeah. I I consider myself lucky. I really do. So what about the yeah. I'm thinking of South Mills and that part of the country and the church going nature of a place like that. And obviously mm-hmm. church going can color one's perspective on homosexuality. What kind of oh, spiritual yeah. tradition were you raised in? I was raised in a Baptist church. Not, yeah. not a friendly place yeah. to gay people, right? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, in the church that I went to, I don't believe there was one Definitely no openly gay people. And I don't even think there were any people that were suspected of being gay in my not even the, the pastor I grew up in. Not even the pastor. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> in the other parts of town there were there were men who were known to be gay. They were I guess they were out. Yeah. They had they had partners. But it was very it was very few because I think most people just left, you know. So there were, I can maybe think of three, three men who, one of them was my mother's, uh, was a classmate 
of my my mother. So he, you know, much older than me. But maybe three men I knew in town or knew of who were who were gay. That like they were gay. There was no question about it. They lived with a man. You know, that sort of thing. But yeah. But to the point of the church, that clouded everything I thought about myself. You know, for you know the whole time from the moment I knew that I was different to the time I left home, you know, I was constantly trying to, praying to be changed. You know, it's, you know, it's very typical, the story of most black, black men raised in the church. We pray to be changed. We pray that it will go away. Why can't we just be straight and be normal, you know? And then I think it for most of us, hopefully at some point we say, fuck it, I'm not praying to be changed anymore <laughs> if, if I'm praying at all, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. So what happened? Did you, I mean, you left the church, I would imagine? Yeah. I didn't leave the church right away. I kept, I kept going, even after I left home, I continued to go to church. But what I did is I found church, I found a church that, well, that first church I went to after leaving home, I found a church where a lot of gay people went to. <laughs> Yeah, and there was homophobia what, it, it, there. A Baptist church? Or a, a Baptist church, yeah. It was called oh. Orange Grove Baptist in Durham, North Carolina. It was a, a big congregation, you know, so you could get but, lost. But more welcoming? But more welcoming, yeah, yeah. So I was a member there for a few years, two maybe two years, and, you know, the the very liberal progressive pastor left. And so a lot of us left with him. Yeah. And then I didn't go to church for a while. And then I moved to New York and found another big church where I had a lot of queer, a lot of queer people and went there for three or four years. And then eventually I decided I didn't want to go to church at all. <laughs> okay. So why? I My views on religion started to sharpen, I will say. And I started to think more closely about the contradictions. And I just, you know, it just became clear to me that I believed what I believed because I had been taught to believe that, you know. But I don't I don't quite call myself an atheist, but I'm really close to it. You know, <laughs> I'm really close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... I just, I just don't know. I'm not prepared to say definitively. I mean, yeah. really the question is what happens when we die, right? right. Like that's, right. I don't know. Yeah. I have some suspicions, but like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to stand up and right. start stumping for him. I'm uh, yeah. trying to stay a little bit more humble than that. <laughs> you have a bit of a historian in you. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of your interest in, like, it makes sense to me that uh, a young black queer kid from a small town in the American South would, as a fiction writer later in his life, write novels that take place in a fictionalized version of this town where you mm -hmm. can kind of excavate, you can rework, you can explore the place kind of on your own terms yeah, and get a chance to put some of these characters who existed in your real life under the microscope mm -hmm. and you get to see their humanity you also, in, in all of its variances, yeah. the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. Is that, is that on track? Like this historical impulse that you have that goes along with the kind of fiction that you've written so far? Absolutely. I think one, what, one thing I try to do in my work is I try to show that no one is all good and no one is all bad. And I take that from 
Toni Morrison. When I started reading her work, I've, I fell in love. I think, uh, well, Beloved was the first book I read. But when I read Sula and then later read an interview she gave about it, and then an essay someone wrote about that, uh, I've, I learned that no human being can be all good, all bad, you know, and, and, and this essay, and I think she even did in the interview cited examples from the books, you know, and I was like, I want to do that in my work because that's real life, (laughs) you know, that's real life. And some of us are only 3% bad and some of us are 30, (laughs) you know, but um, but I'm now wondering what my percentage is. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I said, I just can't write a book where any character is just a hero, you know, just a plain hero and have never done anything wrong and only have pure thoughts about other people, you know, it's just, it's just a lie. And so, yeah, I try to, I try to do that in my work. Yeah. People are complicated. Absolutely. And I think that that is the right impulse as a fiction writer. I mean, you're not going to write very interesting books. I mean, maybe you could write like a comic book or some sort of <laughs> yeah, superhero narrative. But exactly. I think even superheroes these days are flawed, right? Yeah. We always have the superhero with some sort of complicated personal right. situation or Absolutely. flaw. And it, I think that it's an, it's an honest appraisal of the situation that you grew up in, which in many respects was tough. Like you were mistreated and even abused by elders in your community. I think that there could be some temptation to simply cast them as villains, mm-hmm. pure and simple. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like they're yeah. the, they are to use the, uh, the, you know, what is it? The black hats and the white hats. I guess that's not, that's a racialized um, way of putting it, but you know what I'm saying? There's the bad guys and the good guys. Yeah. And you are resisting that dichotomy. Yeah. It's too, that's too easy. You know? And Toni Morrison was a big influence in getting you, headed in that direction absolutely yeah is there anybody else um let's see i think characters in alice walker's book for example i think suge avery suge avery is a really good example suge avery is a woman who she loves she loves other women she wants to uplift other women but she also slept with Celie's husband you know, <laughs> she was like, well, I met him first and I have kids by him. I don't care that you're his husband. I mean, you're the, you're his wife. And I know that he beats on you and that's not great. But guess what? I still love him, you know, and I'm still going to sleep with him. So she was she was a very complicated character. And I, I loved her. <laughs> I loved that character in in The Color Purple. So, yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. There are probably other characters in that same book, you know, Uh, but I do. I love I love a character who has has been naughty and has been nice. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's more fun to read about. And it is interesting when we it's it's fun to develop affection for these people. You know, you sort of. I think we see ourselves, maybe we see it like we see our own complexities, even if they're, they aren't like an exact mirror image. It's like, exactly. That's just how people are. That's how right. we ourselves are. If we're being honest about it. Yeah. And in this novel, you have portrayed a kind of common migratory pattern for black people 
from the American South heading north, like mm -hmm. Josephine and her brother Herschel had left West Mills to go up to New York where they lived in Harlem. Mm -hmm. Not an easy life right. in Harlem. Right. Maybe it was easier maybe for Herschel, who himself is a gay man. Yes. Uh, Josephine's brother, uh, her older brother. And then in this book, you have Josephine returning to the land of her youth, to the town of her youth. Mm -hmm. It's a big change uh, to go back and forth, but it's not uncommon for right. uh, black people, especially of a certain generation, to leave the American South to head north, be it to a place like Chicago or Detroit or mm -hmm. Harlem. Right, yeah. But then to go in reverse and go home, not necessarily the easiest path. Right. Herschel wants nothing to do with it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and he tells her, I don't know, I don't know if you'll like it once you're down there. Cause she was so young when they left the South. So, you know, you know, she's smart enough to know that there was Jim Crow and all that stuff, but because she just didn't experience it so much firsthand, she, you know, she sees the South as this this tranquil place where there'd be green grass all the time and no sirens and you know, that sort of thing. And he's like, well, yeah, you don't, you have, you don't know the South. <laughs> yeah. But I did that in the book, A, because historically it's true that a lot of people, you know, move, move to the North and then they come back when they get older because they, their money can stretch further, you know, but it happened and it happened in my family, my grandparent, my, maternal grandparents moved to New York, had a bunch of kids. They had some of them up here and some of them in the South and, uh, they didn't stay together, but my grandmother, she went back. Yeah. And my grandfather stayed here and died here. <laughs> are you in, are you in Harlem? Well, I'm in New York. I'm in New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, you're in New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in terms of the changes, you know, cause we are in this book, operating in a different time period and so and like what we were talking about like the the south mills of your youth versus the south mills of today like when you go back home if you do go back down there mm -hmm. have there been any systemic changes over the decades or is it pretty much the same and i know these places tend to be a little bit resistant to change and sometimes they can be behind the times a bit in terms of the kind of social and cultural changes that might be in effect in a place like New York city. Yeah. I don't go home very often. I, I probably go to my hometown once every two years, unless there's a reason to go. But I would say sadly that things have not changed there very much culturally, you know, and socially. Uh, I, I don't see it. And from what my peers, my, which are mostly my cousins who still live nearby, they they would they would tell me the same thing <laughs> that things don't seem to have changed very much. Yeah. Now you talked about earlier being bullied when you were a kid growing up there, and you write about Leroy, who is Eunice's son, mm -hmm. and she's trying to both protect him and she's also freaked out by the fact that he's queer and like tries to get. Uh, treatment for him, conversion therapy, essentially yeah. for him. When you were growing up, was conversion therapy, uh, like something that was happening around you? Was it a possibility that you were confronted with at any point? No, not in, not in any kind of formal sense. It was mostly, uh, a religious prayer 
type of thing. You know, I had, um, I had, well, first of all, I want to say that my, you know, my parents never came to me and said, we got to figure out a way to get you fixed. You know, that, that never, that never happened. But I do believe conversations happened, you know, between my mother and, and religious figures, because sometimes I would go to church and a pastor or someone, you know, high up the chain would step, pull me aside and say, let me just pray with you for a minute, brother. You know, and I'd just be like, what is this about? <laughs> and then later on, you know, I, I would, as I got older, I would be like, oh, I see. My mom probably asked him to do that, you know. And I had an uncle, my mom's baby brother. Um, he, he he was a pastor, um, extremely, extremely devout. And whenever I visited his house, because his kids are around my age, sometimes he would he would pull me in the kitchen. And we sit at the kitchen table and he would just put his hands on my shoulders or whatever and just launch into a prayer about protection. And, you know, so I was like, okay. I got to say, that sounds, that would have freaked me out if I would be, (laughs) that doesn't offer me any comfort. Somebody does that to me. I'm like, okay, I got to get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, like the intentions are probably, you know, somewhat positive, but I just, uh. That in the sort moment, of stuff. right in the moment, it didn't feel weird. Sometimes I wouldn't realize what had happened for a year and a half later. You know, <laughs> like oh, I think my mom asked him. He's you know, will you pray for him while he's down there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. So it, I grew up with some of that. I, I you know, I grew up in a big Catholic family, and down my folks are from Louisiana, so I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you please pray for him? That's been happening all throughout my life. And I'm just like, I don't know. Is it working? <laughs> How do things look? But I, uh, I also have a distinct memory of being in North Carolina when I was a young man hiking on the Appalachian Trail, which my listeners have heard me talk about many times. But there was this, uh, I was in a meadow. I think I was eating lunch. I was in like, I was in this kind of, it was like, there were some trees, but it was a little bit clear is what I remember. It was a beautiful spot. That's why I stopped there Mm -hmm. and I had been eating. And then a big group of young kids and some kind of camp counselor age people sort of happened upon me. Okay. And we started talking and within like five minutes, it was like, brother, can we pray for you? Cause I'm, I'm in North Carolina. And whenever anybody asks me that, I always say, yes. I mean, like, yeah, what am I going to say? Sure. Like, I guess no, you know? So I'm just like, sure, bring it on. Yeah. They, they encircled me <laughs> and held hands. And I'm just like, I mean, I have like a beard, like out to here, you know, mm-hmm. I have, I've been in the woods for the whole summer and I'm just like, wow. And these, they, you know, kind of sat there like with an apple in my hand or whatever right. while these people just prayed for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They listen, they they believe in an impromptu prayer. <laughs> they love it. They love it. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about uh some of the thematic concerns of this book that we haven't touched upon yet. And the one in particular that I want to zero in on is the power of secrets. Mm-hmm. I think this is really fascinating and I think it is something that touches most human lives. And I feel like the corrosive power of secrets in human experience 
is something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. Human beings are secretive creatures. Very much so. And we often bury things. Yeah. And we bury things, I think, in a self-protective impulse or even in a protective impulse that extends to others. Like there's a generosity in it, even if it is misguided. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. we, we're not going to talk about that. I don't want the kids to know because we want to protect them and keep their innocence or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But it often backfires. Right. And when people are carrying secrets around, I think it's a it's like an albatross, right? It's like it weighs you down. It colors the interactions that you have with others. Yes. And I think ultimately what it does is it prevents you from having authentic relationships with the people, oftentimes with the people you care about the most. Absolutely. And it just gets heavier and harder the longer it goes on. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. believe that? I mean, it might... I- no. Making I, sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, like a, an example that comes to mind from from the, the novel is that once Eunice makes the decision to seek help and realizes that she can't tell her husband that she has done it, her, her, she has to interact differently with him. She has to lie to him, <laughs> you know, um, about where she was and that sort of thing. And like that scene when she comes back in from going to, when she considered going to go to do harm, she comes in, she's like, oh, I just had to go to the store. But he can tell that that's not quite true. He doesn't press, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's just one of the examples that come to mind. But yeah, I do think that when we when we are trying to keep a secret for whatever reason, whether it's to, to save someone else or save ourselves, um, I think that it, it does create a lot of tension, a lot of, um, a lot of lies, <laughs> you know, you're lying to cover up things and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think it works well in fiction that I, I learned from my teacher, Margot Livesey. She had a seminar when I, I went to university of Iowa and she teaches there. And she so the has, Iowa writers workshop. That, yes. Mm-hmm. The Iowa writers workshop. And she had a seminar on fiction that she teaches often. And one of the things that she advised was to add in some secrets because characters, as we you know just discussed, it changes the way people react with other people, interact with other people when they are hiding something, you know. And so I went crazy with the first book. I went crazy with the secrets. <laughs> I was like, everyone's going to be hiding something, you know. So it's a very good plot device, and I decided to to use it again. (laughs) I think most of us have experience with this. Yeah. Where you find something out about somebody you know that they had been hiding. It is destabilizing. Mm -hmm. It's it's also very humbling. That has been my experience. Like you think you're a writer, and you have great observational powers, and you know what's going on around you, and you have this kind of advanced intuition, Mm -hmm. like all the ways writers can conceive of themselves. But then you find out that one of your closest friends has been doing things you had no idea that they had been doing. (laughs) And it, it really throws you. And it's not, what's interesting to me is that it's not necessarily a moral judgment that results Right. Though maybe it maybe that's part of it. But usually when it's someone close to you, when you find out, it isn't that you're offended 
in a moral sense. It's that you're destabilized because you realize you didn't see them nearly as clearly as you thought that you did. Exactly. Yeah. And that feeling alone is powerfully unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got to believe that it's powerfully unpleasant to have to maintain the ruse. Yes. And it's also really troubling how good some people are at it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be able to carry a really serious lie or a really serious secret around with you in your day-to-day for years, for lifetimes, people can do this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is astonishing to me. I, I suppose I have that capacity too. I'm a human, but I'm not good at that. No. I think like I'm a, I don't know. I shouldn't say, I don't know. I don't want to over, I don't want to make myself sound holier than thou, <laughs> but I think it would be very difficult for me to have a kind of double life or something like right. that. Yeah. My facade would crack. You know, I may be able to hold it whatever I'm trying to hide, I don't, a year, but you know, maybe yeah. <laughs> but my facade. Maybe. I could manage it for like six months to a year. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but some people just, you know, I guess they have a higher capacity for it or maybe things get so out of control at some point that you just, you feel like you're in too deep and you just have to keep going with it. Yeah. Uh, but that's fascinating human behavior and it's right. fascinating also that it's so damn common. I know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's anybody who lives a, you know, a good number of years who doesn't experience some variation of that. And uh, you do a good job of kind of portraying the way that that can kind of undo people. And it's also really interesting to think of deep secrets and this theme of the cost of keeping secrets in the context of a town like West Mills, mm-hmm. where there are fewer secrets between people because everybody is living in close proximity and there's a limited right. number of people. Exactly. It's harder to keep a secret in a right. town like South Mills or West Mills, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to have an affair, you can, you know, you could be dumb and you could just let everyone see you, <laughs> you know, and deal right. with it, or you drive an hour away. And you still might get caught, but it might take a little longer, you know. At least there's some buffer in the aftermath. Exactly. (laughs) You have like like 50 miles between you and chaos. (laughs) Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, yeah. So I want to talk with you about some craft stuff because I read uh, some things about the way that you approach the work that I found interesting. And also they brought uh, decent people into sharper focus for me. 
because I think one of the strongest aspects of your work is your ear for dialogue mm-hmm. and the regional dialect. Like it feels just very lived in. These are the people you know. The sounds of the, the place are just uh, something that you have a very firm grasp of. Thank uh, you. The way that people talk, it shows up on the page. And I was reading about uh, a conversation that you had with a writer friend of yours, I think an MFA classmate named Regina Porter. Mm-hmm who is a playwright as well. Yes. And she made a recommendation to you that I want to hear you talk about. I mean, uh, maybe I can let you relay it. I'm sure you've told this story before. I know you've told this story before because I've read it, but you'll probably do a better job than I would. But can you just talk about what insight she shared with you that helped you on your way? Yeah, I was telling her this is, you know, I think it was our second, maybe second semester, second or third semester in the program. And I told her, I said, I have... I like I hear I know what my characters need to say in a scene, you know, I know what needs to happen in a scene, but it's it's um I what slows me down is filling in the where they are and what they're wearing and you know and all that sort of thing and and not just setting but just other exposition, you know. And she said, "Well, don't worry about the exposition." She said, "Right now." She said, "Just write the dialogue." She said, "If you just if you have a thousand pages of dialogue, let that be fine. And you go back later and you convert it, you know, you add in what you need to add about setting and feelings and stuff that that's not being conveyed from the dialogue. But right now, get that dialogue down. When you know your care, if you know what your characters are saying to each other, let that lead you to the end. And I, I did that in West Mills and I did that largely with, with decent people. Yeah, it's just you just wrote mo- like in an early draft. You were bo- basically just in all dialogue mode. Exactly, exactly. That gave you your narrative. It did, it did. Because um, what I would do is I would read a conversation, and so once I got to the end, I would go back and I would read a conversation. I thought, okay, if she said this in the kitchen, she might throw the napkin you know, when she said this word. So I'll make this conversation happen in the kitchen, you know? And then then I, then I the little setting details come in and so on and so forth. But yeah, it really worked for me to have dialogue down first. It really did. And I think Regina being a playwright and doing st- stage directions later after the heart of the play is written, I think that's where her advice comes from. And it has been incredibly, incredibly helpful. And growing up in a place like South Mills, this is just my imagination of it. I mean, I grew up in some smaller suburbs, but I don't think as small as South Mills. What was the population mm. about when you were growing up? Do you know? You know, I don't know. If I had to take a, a rough guess, though, maybe a few thousand. Okay, so small. It was small, yeah. So it would have been even smaller when my mother was growing up, you know. Yeah. But I, I, my, you know, my mother in particular is from a small town in in uh, Louisiana, and people, you know, I'm imagining you growing up there. People, people talk a lot, mm-hmm. maybe in ways that they don't in big cities. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I know people talk everywhere, but it's yeah. like in the you know, neighbors. It's a slower pace of life, right? Maybe especially back in like the 70s and 80s, people hanging out in each other's yards. This is pre cell phone. Yeah. People yeah. chat. You grew up around people talking. Yes. Is the point. Absolutely. People talk all 
the time, <laughs> you know, and um, you go to the grocery store. I used to hate going to the grocery store with my mom because you stand in one aisle for 35 minutes because she ran into Miss Geneva, you know, and so they have to have their conversation. Then you go to around right. the corner and she runs into Jimbo, you know, <laughs> then they have to have their 15 minute conversations, just talking, talking, talking. I feel like that's my nightmare. <laughs> you can't go anywhere. I mean, right. it's like, but the, yet, but it's also like a dream because it is nice to know people in your community. I, I can talk out of both sides of my mouth on this thing, but <laughs> if you just want to go out and get groceries and yeah, come home and you're, you're home. on the clock, exactly. good luck, man. Right. You, Cause then you, if you like, I feel like I ran into this this morning, I ran into somebody and I was, you know, I was like, I got to get back and get started with work and I should have just said that, but why is it so hard for me to say that? <laughs> I don't want to seem rude, yeah. you know, but I think I, I came off seeming rude because I wasn't just honest about the fact that I was on the <laughs> clock. I was trying to like hurry up the conversation. And, yeah. <laughs> but in a small town in the South, man, you got to be ready. And you as a little boy, I'm just picturing you, you know, and you're a writer. <laughs> Writers are good observers typically. And yeah. you're, you were listening is yes. the point. You always yeah, was... were tuned in. Yeah, as as much as I would be frustrated by it, I was also I was also tuned in and paying attention. And I learned something like, you know, one thing I say, and I can only say this because I know my mom won't listen to this podcast, but my, my you mom never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah, she could be a fan. Yeah. You know, a lot of people that I grew up around were gossips, you know. And so that was that was not a that wasn't anything special. But something that I'd learned from observing this gossip is I learned how the story is not that they changed the story from one person to a, to the next, but with one person, someone might get the full story. And with the next phone call, lots of would be omitted, you know, and, and I, and I, I used to wonder, well, I wonder why my aunt told her girlfriend that part but she when she told my mom she left out that part you know and then I start to as an adult and as a writer thinking back on these things oh I see why she my mom is her older sister and she wants to appear a certain way to her to her older sister but with her girlfriend their peers they can be messy together so she can tell her the whole story you know right and the good version. Right. She could tell her the good version. <laughs> so I learned that gossip is is not just, there's just not one type of gossip where a person tells a story and then it passes on. People are making dis- conscious decisions when they tell, when they gossip about who can handle what information and who who they'll share, who they want to think highly of them. Therefore, I won't share the smutty parts. I'll share just the point. You know, I won't get into yeah. the lurid because I enjoyed the lurid and I don't want her to know that I, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so there's this socio, you're right. Sociodynamic stuff happening in gossip. You must have been a pain to have around as a kid because you were listening and making oh. these connections. 
I was always being, my mother would be on the phone, be on the phone and she could tell that I was listening, even though I was watching the TV (laughs) and she would say, hold on a second. And she would press the phone into her, into her bosom and then tell me, I know you're sitting there listening, go do something. something." (laughs) Yeah. Be gone with you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) But it ended up serving you well, you know, and I think that you have to be a good listener to be a good writer. I don't think there's any way to do I it agree. otherwise, or at least that's some component of it. And yeah. for you, it seems especially the case to be this like this talky in your approach to writing fiction. I don't think I've ever talked to a writer who, unless I didn't know it, who does it that way, mm. you know, writing out dialogue to begin with and then doing all expository writing in subsequent drafts. Yeah. But it sounds, cause I love to write dialogue and it's like, that might be the most pleasurable part of writing fiction for me <laughs> is to write dialogue. It seems yeah. like you're obviously the same way, but yes, maybe I should try that. Like just do an entire draft of dialogue and then figure out the rest based yeah. on that. It's going to be a large file, you know, <laughs> but you go back and convert it. So you leave home at age 18 after high school mm-hmm. and you move to, was it Durham? Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. And you and you said earlier you came out like within six months of leaving home. Yes. Was moving from South Mills to Durham a, a huge change for you at the time, like culturally? Yeah, it's a bigger city and the university. So I went there to go to North Carolina Central University, but it's the, the tri it's called the Triangle, the Research Triangle area. And so there's Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill is right up the road. And Duke University was very close by and then over in Raleigh you have those so I met it felt like a it felt like a New York City in North Carolina you know I just met people from all different places I met lots of other queer people within the first month you know I was going to clubs illegally (laughs) within a few months of moving away you know and um that was fast yeah (laughs) (laughs) You I figured was that out quick. <laughs> really quickly, yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a big difference. I mean, I outgrew it quickly, too, you know. But moving from a small town like the, the Elizabeth City, South Mears area, and going to a place where it's like 10 universities in a few minutes drive, few miles drive, it was a big deal. Yeah. It was, it's the capital. Raleigh is the capital, and Durham's right next to it, and Chapel Hill, you know. So, yeah, that was really great. It was a really great experience. I made a lot of mistakes during those those years, but I lived, you know. And when I, I when I moved here to New York, because I had gotten a lot of mess out of my system, I didn't come here and make those all of those big city mistakes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, no, you I, had so, like the training. You had like the training wheels version exactly, in Durham, and exactly. then that got you ready for New York. That's right. We all have to, I mean, most people, I'm sort of fascinated by these people who never really had like big messy years. Like they just sort of always had their shit together. Like, what's going on with those people? Yeah, I don't, I stay away from them. Something not right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Who needs those people? Yeah. Annoying. They turn 70 Uh, and then they want to party. Maybe. Well, listen, yeah, I just was talking to a friend of mine the other day. And he was telling me about like, you know, he and his wife met through their son's school, you know, they Mm -hmm. met this couple who were Mormon. They had been Mormon. 
Okay. Uh, but then the wife decided she didn't want to be in the church. And there was this kind of like back and forth between husband and wife. And it caused like real merit of te- uh, marital tension. Mm. But then they went to, to marriage counseling. Okay. And the marriage counselor suggested ketamine therapy. <laughs> And it fucking worked <laughs> like gangbusters, like blue, like it totally deprogrammed the Mormon stuff. Like they're, they're out both wow. of them. And now like they're super into cannabis and like the, like to the point where the guy is making his own gummies and shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's like nothing in, no one is more fervent in their belief than the recent yeah. convert, you know? So it's like, it's like this inverse of the religious experience. And so these are people in midlife who are now ex Mormons mm-hmm. who are like going through a huge drug phase. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, it's interesting. So, uh, you went after Durham to New York. Is that the trajectory? And then from yes. New York to the Iowa writers workshop. Correct. How yeah. was Iowa for you? It was fine. I mean, I met, I met really lovely people there. I enjoyed 75, you know, percent of my workshop experience. I I don't love the workshop experience, you know. To to be honest, um, so me neither. I, yeah, so I didn't enjoy being workshopped much, you know. Like one time a semester is fine. After that, I'm like, okay, I know what you all, I know what you all like, so I know what you're gonna say about my pages, you know. But, well, and I I just want to interrupt because I feel like in the workshop experience, my problem with it is that the level of attention that you're getting from people varies so much. Exactly. So people, some people, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty big ask to ask right. people to go read 30 pages of your in process fiction and come back yeah. with something intelligent to say about it. A lot of people skim over it, but then right. in order to seem competent in workshop will say something with this very definitive air. Exactly. That's not helpful to me. Like nope. I only want to hear from people who are actually invested in me and right. like are giving me the straight shit and have really taken the time to read it. And if yeah. that if that's the case, even if they have negative things to say, I'm there for it. I'm but there for what it. D- what I don't like is when people did it the night before in a rush in 30 mm-hmm. minutes and suddenly are an expert on my work. It's like exactly. I don't know. Right. Yeah, and then they so. they want to compare you to writers you've never ever heard of, and, and and I'm like, well, that doesn't help because I haven't read that book, you know. Like, don't name drop, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, Some obscure Bulgarian novelist, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I enjoyed being there to be around people who were also interested in doing the same thing, and you know. I can. I feel like I can call on just about anybody that I went to that program with, and even people who graduated before me who still live there and have a conversation. So it was really good, you know. Socially, it was good, and I learned. You know, I I did write down some book recommendations and that sort of thing, and read some people I probably wouldn't have read previously. So it, you know, it definitely was was good. I'm not one of those people who thinks that writers should run out and apply to MFA programs. You know, I know that there's a business part to it that can be very helpful and I benefited from that, you know, but I just, I think if you got a good, I hate to use the word, but if you have a good product, (laughs) you know, you just really go for it. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't need. It's a, yeah, I think it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a nice to have. It's not a must have. And right. it can be useful, like you say, socially, and it can be useful in terms of helping you build a network, which can otherwise be more difficult to build, you know, Absolutely. because writers are kind of dispersed all over the place. Or even if you're in New York or something, you're in Brooklyn and there's lots of writers around. Everyone's still in their little apartment. Absolutely. And might not be connecting as much as one might think. And I feel like Iowa is sort of like, it performs a similar function to like Saturday Night Live for comedians. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like the place. Like if you graduate from Iowa, it's like uh, a feather in your cap and people in publishing will always maybe give you the time of day. Yeah. At least they'll, they'll at least give you a look, right? They'll give but, you a look. And it's that network too. Like people yeah. who graduated from Iowa, like feeling like a real affinity with other people who graduated from Iowa to a degree that maybe exceeds other MFA programs, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that's been the case. And yeah. then you worked on your debut there. Is that where you wrote it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wrote it there. I, uh, I think I started it during my second year or in the break between first and second year. And, uh, I think I finished the first draft in my final semester and sent it out and didn't have any luck and went back to the drawing table and, and expanded. It was a very short book, you know, my first one, but all the agents were like, it's too short. And I was like, no, it's not. Justin Torres's first book is, well, at that time, he only had one. And I said, Justin Torres. We the Animals. Like, we the Animals is 124 pages. Don't tell me, <laughs> you know, that my 130-page right. book is too short, you know. But, I, you know, when 10 agents tell you it's too short, then you say, okay. And uh, so I went back and I expanded it. And that that was that's what it needed. Yeah, I was stubborn. You know, I was stubborn. And I had in my mind that I wanted to publish before I turned 40. You know, I ended up publishing when I turned 40. <laughs> close enough. Before, close enough. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now here you are with the uh, follow-up. Yeah, yeah. Was it harder to write the second novel than it was the first? Yeah, I think it, I think it was. I would say it was harder. Mm-hmm. There was some comparisons I was making, you know, and then I was also doing this thing where because it was set in the same place, I didn't want to just sort of regurgitate, you know, but I was also trying to make sure I was, even though I was using a few characters that had been introduced in NOS Mills, I wanted to make sure that they were different. I didn't want to, you know, the, the people in NOS Mills, they're all nice people. And I mean, my lead protagonist was a raging alcoholic and I did not want to have like the raging alcoholic in the second book, you know, I was like, they can, these black people can have problems, but it's not going to be substance abuse, <laughs> you know, and it's not going to be having three babies with three different men. It's not going to be any of that. You know, I'm going to have black people with money, but they can still have problems and they can right. still deal with racism, you know? And I wanted to have, I wanted to have white characters as well, but I wanted them to be more, than just your Southern racist white person. You know, I wanted them to be rounded, you know, fully realized characters. And, you know, I, I was, I, I wanted to make sure that I was true to the place and the time, you know, I couldn't make them all be 
liberal, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, but I was like, I also don't have to write white characters who are all walk, walking around with uh, tiki torches, you know. Like I can find a happy medium. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Right. So that's what it's I like sought out to do. That's my experience of people in general, but also, you know, especially people in the South. I've spent a lot of time in the South and like the tensions are real and they're there and racism is real and it is definitely there. Yeah. But it's usually muddled. Right. And I mean, I saw it in my, I've seen it in my own family over the years as a kid. I was like grandparents, you know, very friendly with people in the neighborhood and I always tell this story, but yet like wouldn't let me watch the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm like what? <laughs> you know, like it didn't, it honestly didn't make much sense. Yeah. It's, it was hard to square. It's still hard to square, but right. these things have deep roots and, Absolutely. uh, you know, they go back generations and it's taught and handed down and yeah, who knows, but it's, uh, it's very well, it's very deftly drawn in your book and felt familiar to me in some way. And also nice to be in a small town in a novel, mm. which doesn't happen as often as maybe it should. Right. Uh, there are a lot of big cities in books, I feel yeah. like, at least the ones that come across my desk. And it's not <laughs> often that I'm reading books that are set in like the the rural South in some small town, though, you know, occasionally it happens. So yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you're, are you going to continue in that vein? Is West Mills like the place for you or are you going to move out and go other places in your fiction? I'm going to move out. The book I'm working on now is set upstate New York because I lived up there briefly. So I'm, I'm trying a new setting with, with the one I'm working on now, but I do think I will come back to West Mills. There are characters that I think I want to, um, explore previously introduced characters that I think I want to give them their own novel, even if it's just a short, finally, one day someone will let me write the 125 page novel. (laughs) And I think I'll, I'll go to, um, I'll go to one of the characters from in West Mills who haven't quite left my mind, you know, and give them their due. Yeah. I want to come back to the town. How's writing upstate New York going for you? I'm thinking of your dialogue approach. Like, how's the talk in upstate New York going for yeah, you on the page? It's difficult. It's diff- It's difficult. I am not using a ton of vernacular, you know. <laughs> I'm using, I'm finding that I'm using a little bit of New York terminology, but but most people sort of just talk standard English, <laughs> right? You know, right. I mean, <laughs> but, it's not uh, a second hand. It's not as nearly a second hand for you as it is to write that North Carolina exactly uh, vernacular. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's going to be it's difficult. It is difficult. Yeah. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to learn because again, I only lived there for a year, and um, and it's historical. So I have to, you know, there's research to be done. <laughs> What can you tell me when it's set? Like what general yeah, time period? Yeah, it's set in 80, right now it's 82, 1982. Oh. Yeah. And it's set in a town, it's set in Socrates. Yeah. Set All in right. Socrates. Well, we'll look forward to it. It is a pleasure <laughs> to meet you and I appreciate Likewise. you taking the time to talk with me. Congratulations on uh, Decent People paperback edition. Correct? Yes. Yes. Comes out January right. uh, 16th. All right. Well, good luck with everything and uh, appreciate the time. Thank you so much. All right, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Deshaun Charles Winslow. 
His latest novel is called Decent People. It is available now in trade paperback from Bloomsbury. You can find Deshaun on the internet at DeshaunCharlesWinslow.com. He is also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Decent People. Go get your copy right now. It's available in trade paperback wherever books are sold. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People podcast wherever you listen. Hit that subscribe button and follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. I would love it if you signed up for my weekly email newsletter. It's free. Head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and sign up. You can also join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Rate it, review it. It helps the show find new listeners. And if you want to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt, or if you want to sign up for the Other People Book Club, you can do all of that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if you want. It's my book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a novel. Go get it if you so desire. Okay, so coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with Marie-Helene Bertino. She has a new novel out called Beautyland. It's getting lots of buzz, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Excited about that one coming up on Wednesday. So 